So again, we had a. Ted, did you get a? Just get one. Okay, go. Uh, child care again. So that's why we're starting now. Hello. Okay. So today for recording, I'm going to be recording in this, and hopefully it's recording in the back. So I'll be like like repeating your questions if any questions are asked, just so it makes it on the recording. Um. I want to start by reading a couple of verses of Psalms 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole hearts, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping in your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth, and in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all the riches. I'll meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I'll delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And this is the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's all about delighting and like the blessings that come from studying and keeping God's word. And so... Uh, I listened to a sermon once where, like, the start of the sermon was the preacher reading all of some, some Psalms 118. And you're always like, about right now, you're like, is he really going to read the whole Psalm 119? And the answer was yes, right? He, like, he did. And it, was, and it was, I think, instructive that he did that. that he took time, like, 15, 20 minutes of his sermon to speak, read the Word of God. And one of the things he pointed out that kind of, stuck with me is all is like he said uh, at some point like he did some of it but he said at some point you yourself go and enumerate all the blessings that come from studying and keeping god's word that are outlined in psalms 119 and so i did it for like a week and then stopped because that's just my discipline so or lack thereof but but it but i think the point being is like there is great blessing and so and the thing that always kind of struck me about psalms 119 is like as he's talking about not like I feel this way inherently about the New Testament. Like, oh, I delight in your law, I delight in, you know, in your, because I spent so much time saturated in the New Testament. But then he's talking about the Old Testament. And you're like, really? Really? I like verse 18. I think it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible right now. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And I say, yes, Lord, amen. <laughs> help me in this, because I need God's help in doing this. Um, so today we're talking about the, the, the development of the Old Testament. So um, before too much further, let's pray. Lord, 
as the psalmist says, we need your help in understanding your word, delving into your word, understanding it, and loving it. Lord, and we understand that there's blessing that comes from this, Lord. I pray that we learn to experience that blessing. Lord, help us now as we study in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. All right, so um, this is titled Old Testament Canon. What do we mean by canon? So the uh, word canon comes from, think of a yardstick. That was what the Greeks called a canon, a rule that you measure by. So if you wanted to measure anything, you just kind of, with the measuring stick, and say it's yay long, yay high, yay really yay. And um, so canon is like that rod. And so it's the thing that, that you measure by. So the Greek word canon was a measuring reader rod. God's people have received God's word as their rule and measuring rod for all of life. So that's why they call it the canon. So we're dealing with this idea of canonicity. And so the idea of canonicity is what books of the Bible um, should be in there. Like, of, of all the things written by godly people, why are these considered to be the books of the Bible and then not others? Okay. So, in terms of, like, just defining the question here, we say that canonicity is ultimately determined by God, um, which we feel is the claim of the Bible. God determines what is his word and what is not his word. And the, the, what people do, what the you know, people who follow God do, is they receive it. And, and there's going to be some value in the fact that we're saying like the church as a whole has received these books as the Bible and not these others. But what we don't want to say is that people determined, oh, these books and not others. They simply recognized what God had already done. So this quote here in the beginning, under definition of canon, says, the reason there are only 66 books in the canon is that God inspired only that many. Only 66 books were found to have the stamp of divine authority. Because God only stamped that many, or invested that number, with authority for faith and practice. Now, feeding into what BJ said towards the end of the, uh, his session last time, God is, God is involved with both ends of Revelation. He's, not, he's involved in the giving of it and in the receiving of it. He gives his word, and then on the other hand, he works on our hearts to receive it. And so we, we're, that is one of the key ideas of like what's going to be the Bible and what's not. It's like, well, God delivered his word, and his people received his word. And we'll look at some verses for that. So, Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So, this idea, at many times, and in many ways. So think about all the ways that God spoke to people with visions, um, through prophets, through narrative of history, okay, he spoke to them. And then at many times, like this was a progressive sequence. So we're kind of in this stage where we've been given like this completed canon, like we have the 66 books, and until Christ returns, we're not really expecting another book of the Bible to come down and be given to us. Some people say, what happens if we found another letter by Paul? Well, first of all, good luck. Like I think at this point, you're probably not going to find one. But if we weren't given 
Yeah. If they do find another letter of Paul, God obviously didn't intend for all of the church for all these centuries to have this letter. It's, we wouldn't consider it to be canonical. So many times, so God is progressively giving his people um, revelation. So imagine, like, it's hard to say what happened from like in Genesis on. Like the gap between um, Adam and then... Fast forward to the Exodus when Moses starts recording actual um, records. And the, the, the Torah, the first five books, um, even though there's parts of it that were probably written during the ministry of Moses, um, Deuteronomy seems to give us the indication that at the, when Israel is standing on Moab across the, um, what's that river called? I was going to keep saying Nile. It's not the Nile. The Jordan, yes. The Jordan. He's standing across from the Jordan like, so Moses is not going to go in there. Like, God said you're not going in. So he's going to die before then. So Moses is like writing the law for a second time. The, the Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. And so he, like, he hands the law off to them. And so that's when we think that Genesis through um, Deuteronomy was compiled as a, as a book. We break it into five books because it's actually one book that takes five scrolls to write it. And the names Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers come from the first phrase at the beginning of each book. Now, they're broken up at good spots, right? Um, Genesis, like right before Egypt, it's like stops right there. But then Exodus starts, you know, and then uh, Exodus ends with, and Moses tried to go in the tent and it didn't work, right? And then Leviticus, and, and off it goes. So, so then at that point, you have like these five books of law, and then this is like scripture. And then... Joshua starts writing, and then that scripture, and then Judges. So all along, like it's kind of like layer upon layer, there's like new revelation getting added on, and this is becoming uh, canon or scripture. So the question is, like, there were other things spoken, other things possibly written. Like, why are these books the books that are in the Old Testament? So these um, we have here, if you keep, I don't know what page it is on, like the next page. The process of canonization. So why and how were these books accepted as scripture? Now, I'm going to talk about Old Testament this time and New Testament next time. So these um, principles that is going to be true for both the Old and New Testament. It was a pretty consistent uh, measure. So these were the 66 books accepted as God's revelation. Now, the guiding principles. The first one. One of the first questions was, was the book written by a prophet or an apostle of God? Because not everybody says they spoke from God, actually spoke from God. And so um, let's look at Jeremiah 1. Picking up in verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you 
to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put your words in your, my words in your mouth. See, I have set, set you this day over the nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And then verse 11 says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And then this motif, from this point on, in the book of Jeremiah, over and over again, The word of the Lord came to me, saying... So Jeremiah has not got like these vague feelings like, ooh, I think God's telling me to say something like this. No, the word of the Lord comes compellingly upon him to deliver the actual words that God wanted him to speak. Now, um, there's this idea in the Old Testament of the Messiah. Um, now, there's like the Messiah, like par excellence, the coming one, who's going to be like the one who is the Messiah of all Messiahs, as it were. And there's like this recognition of it. But the word Messiah um, means literally the anointed one. So someone who had the anointing of the Holy Spirit in a unique way. And the, the way you were identified as a quote-unquote anointed one was you see it with the prophets. They would have like the, the oil poured over their head and you'd be, as it were, anointed. It's like an image of God's Spirit coming and saturating you. Now, whether or not, like, for example, Jeremiah had oil poured over his head, like, that was the symbolism. The reality was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit came and was working in you in a unique way. And so, like, the three offices that people were anointed with oil for was prophet, priest, and king. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, and prophets were anointed. In other words, the Holy Spirit's coming and uniquely helping you in this way. And so, you have Jeremiah here, like, God delivering words to him. The Holy Spirit is helping him with these words. And like throughout the book of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord said, the word of the Lord said, to the point that you almost think like the main character of Jeremiah is not Jeremiah. It's God and his words. It's the word of the Lord that's compelling. The word of the Lord that rises, makes nations rise and make nations fall. So, um, now God delivers revelation through people. And you might think, like, that's a very flawed way to do it. You might wonder, like, why God chose to do that. I think many atheists have kind of commented the same way. Like, you know, notably, it's always a bunch of people saying they speak for God. True story. Yeah, yeah, that is the point. Now, God at times gives revelation. You have Jesus Christ, we say it's God, right? And he's delivering. But God is it's just the way that from the beginning, from the very creation of the world, like, it seems like God is going to work through people. Like, when God puts man and woman in the garden, he does it as like his regents. Like, I'm going to work in and through you to multiply and fulfill the earth. And so in the same way, when God does ministry, he does it through us. And, and uniquely, when he does this revelation, he does it through prophets, um, or in the case of the New Testament, apostles. So actually, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Okay, so this conversation that Paul is getting into kind of gives us part of the reason why we call Old Testament, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. There's like this body of revelation pointing forward to something, Old Testament, and then Christ comes and reveals the intention behind what was being pointed at, and then now you have these apostles going like, oh, oh, that's divine by the way, Holy Spirit, 
oh, I see what's going on here. And then, so then, this conversation. So Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Okay, so God's grace was given to Paul for the sake of the church. How, verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So mystery here, in English, we call it mystery like, dum 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 Yeah, mystery, that's when we think of mystery, like something was hidden in cloak and dagger. Mystery is a little more plain in Greek. It's like, basically, you didn't know about something, but now you do. So this mystery, something you didn't know about, has now been revealed by revelation. As I've written briefly, verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ's which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by who? His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, in this case, the apostles and prophets, well, okay, apostles, that's like a whole new category. So Jesus had the disciples, 12 disciples become his sent, commissioned speakers, go and proclaim this word. Prophets here, not referring to necessarily Old Testament prophets. He was referring to the new prophets that are coming, that in the beginning of the church, in the new age, there were prophets delivering revelation alongside the apostles. Kind of different than the apostles, but they were also given revelation. We'll look at one of those verses a little bit later. So, apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, so namely, what was this mystery that was revealed This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same bodies, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, Gentiles get in on the blessings as well. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was in me by the working of his power. Paul would always say, it's God's power working through me. I am just that rotten sinner that God saved and decided to exalt himself with. So, so one of the first considerations and one of the key considerations when considering whether or not something came from God was whether or not they were one of the commissioned Holy Spirit anointed people delivering the word. Secondly, was the writer confirmed by the acts of God? Because many people can come saying, the Lord spoke to me. You need to listen. I've had people come to this church tell me this very thing. You know, I have a word of the Lord from you. The other day, uh, the uh, the UN has an army sitting on I five to come take out Humboldt County up by Wednesday. Like, thus saith the Lord. I'm like, okay, right? Okay, I'm I'm not thinking that's going to happen. Um, so the confirmation. So Deuteronomy eighteen. Verse fifteen. Okay, so Deuteronomy. Moses is going to die. Now, you have a whole two or three generations of people who've received the word of the Lord through Moses. Moses, like, God's glory would, like, would come onto the tabernacle, and it would glow. No one's going near that thing. Moses would go in, and he'd come out, and his face is shining like the sun. And so, and he says, okay, I've talked to the Lord, this is what he said. Now, as a Israelite, you're like, I believe you. If your face comes shining like the sun, and I saw God's glory, and, I, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's earthquakes, and you come out saying you have something of the Lord, I don't have a problem believing that. Okay, but now Moses is going to die. 
So now what? Okay, so, so like, how are we going to hear from the Lord? So verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let, not, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. So in other words, they're standing in the mountain and going like, uh, no, I'm not going up there. It's too scary. It's too glorious. It's too holy. And the Lord said to me, verse 17, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, that I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? Well, here it is, verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. In other words, God's saying, I, the omnipotent, omniscient God, am speaking to this person. And so, if this person says something's going to happen, it doesn't happen, I was not the one who gave him the message. So, were these books of the Bible delivered to Israel? Says Isaiah says, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. And many people said, don't believe it. Well, it happens. So now what? Now you start believing it. Because God says exactly what would, the words I say that will happen will happen. Isaiah 41, speaking of, which this one's interesting too, because Scripture being true and right is not just, as it were, an intellectual exercise. Like, oh, I wonder if the Bible's true. God's very character is at stake here. Like, if, if God's word is not true, if it's proved false, then God himself is false. Okay, so Isaiah 41, verse 21. Okay. So here's the one where... So, so Israel's not the only one with prophets, right? And there's these other nations with prophets saying they speak from their God, and they're having a good day. Like, these nations are rising, they're like, like USA of the little territories, right? They're coming through, and like, they're top dog. And so they're like, well, obviously God, uh, our God's right, because we're doing so great. And so, but God's like, no, 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 no. I'm God, still. You're just doing what I wanted them to do. I set the boundaries of nations. But then, but then, like, okay, so you're an Israelite, and you're thinking, like, well, I mean, they've got a pretty good army. Like, and they've been having these amazing conquests. Like, how do I know, like, that you're God, and they're not God? So, God and Isaiah, and I did a whole sermon on this on the Trinity. Like, how do you know, like, how does God say that he's God? And there's, like, he has all these attributes. And if your God is missing one of those attributes, you're not God. So, Verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring to them and tell us what is to happen. So, who's going to win the election? Hmm? Right? How long is the United States going to be around? Hmm? 
Well, let me tell you. Equivalent, okay, not this one, but so God says, well, let me tell you. I'll tell you exactly how it's going to go down. But, so, so let, but here's the challenge. Let them, let these idols bring them and tell us what's to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we, we may know their outcome or declare things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning? That we might know beforehand, that he might, we might say he is right. There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. In other words, like God saying, I called it. And I keep calling it. And I keep calling it. And by the way, like, so like we have limited memory, right? Like, what happened 10 years ago? Don't remember. God does. He says, and he brings to remembrance things that happened in the past. And they're like, oh, that's right. You did. Or, oh, that's right. That did happen. One more. Hebrews chapter 2. Well, one more for this verse. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how then shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, so in this case referring to Jesus, it was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, so that would be the apostles and the witnesses, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So how are the people who like, so you're some Gentile now. Okay, so now you're Jews for a little bit. Now imagine you're a Gentile. You're out in Podunk, ancient Near East. And someone says, hey, there's this guy from Israel named Jesus, rose from the dead. And you're like, how am I supposed to know that this is a true statement? Well, God would back it up with signs and wonders. The apostles could exercise, you know, well, in Acts, you see that they're raising people from the dead, healing people. So God gave the apostles the ability, like the confirmation of their message. All right. So, was it written by a prophet apostle? Was it confirmed by acts of God? Did the message tell the truth about God? Okay, so... Eh, we're doing good on time. Deuteron- back to Deuteronomy. I'm trying to do Old and New Testament. And by, uh, by no means is this the exhaustive list. Selective. Like three or four verses each. So, Deuteronomy 13...
Okay, so remember, how do you know when a, you know, this guy says, he's speaking from God, and God says, well, if it comes to pass, or it comes to signs and wonders, you can confirm that this person is a prophet. Now get this. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you should not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. So notice the signs and wonders is kind of like one side of the confirmation, but there's another side too. It's like, is it consistent with what God has told you? So, now, the next phrase is even crazier still. So, like, so someone actually comes, some sign of wonder happens, you're like, what? Because, but now you're telling me to go do something God told me not to do. So, what's going on here? Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. <laughs> to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So, in other words, yep, they performed a sign. God was testing you. He allowed that to happen. I mean, you think about um, Pharaoh's court. I mean, the magicians could imitate some of the... I mean, there's spiritual powers that God lets happen. You know, they could turn things into snakes, too. And, but God says, I let that happen. Are they telling you to do what I told you to do? I'm testing you. Hmm. Okay, so this is the other thing. Does the message tell the truth about God? Is it consistent with what he's revealed about himself? So, um, Galatians 2.20, we won't turn there, I'll quote it. This is the one that says, Paul says, oh, someone came with another gospel, apostle, I tell you what, if I came, if I, Paul, came back to you and had a totally different gospel, don't believe me. It's false. If an angel comes to you with another gospel, don't believe him. It's, it's inconsistent with the message that you have already received and the power that you've already experienced. And then 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 and 3. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians, we're looking at a young church. Like, we're talking like, this is probably one of the earliest books of the New Testament. And so, we'll get into next week, not all the churches in the early days of the churches had the whole Bible. Like, there's letters of Paul there, like, circling around. And so, meanwhile, do you sit around and wait? Well, no. God provided Prophets, like not just an apostolic message, but he gave prophets to help give revelation to the churches kind of in the meanwhile, or maybe forever, depending on your view of gifts. Now, uh, 12 verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. Alright, that was not the Holy Spirit. I know, he's got quote, like, quoting, like, Jesus is accursed. In other words, they're like, hey, uh, Paul, so we had these prophets speaking the other day, and he said Jesus was accursed. What do we do with that? And he, and he seems like he's a prophet. And he's like, that was not from the Holy Spirit. Like, you can, it's inconsistent with what you already know. And no one can say Jesus is the Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the message being proclaimed has to be consistent with the message delivered. The last one, and I'll just allude to it, 1 John 4, 1-13, 1-3, um, 
saying that there are spirits of the Antichrist out there. There are false spirits that drive people to say things like, this is from the Lord, and it is not, for the same exact reason. It is inconsistent with the message already delivered to you, delivered by Jesus, delivered by the apostles. Okay, so, was it written by an apostle or prophet? Was the writer confirmed by the act of God? Did the message tell the truth about God? So those kind of go hand in hand. Does it come with the power of God? Does it come with the power of God? Isaiah 55. So what we're going to argue here is that God's word, when God speaks, it is qualitatively different than any other word spoken. So Isaiah 55 verse 10, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return, there but water the earth and make it bring forth and sprout, giving seeds to sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God says, my words do exactly what I intended to do. Now, we ourselves, do we know what God intended by his word? Mm, no, don't try. Okay, Like, I hate to be in Isaiah's shoes. He's got this ministry where his job is to proclaim the judgment of God, knowing full well that people are not going to receive it, just so God could say in hindsight, I told you so. Like, I told you this would happen. So they would know that when the judgment came, it was by the plan of God. But, I mean, imagine saying, hey, you're going to have a great prophetic ministry. Yes! Repentance. No, not repentance. That's not what you're there for. So, it's like, your job is, to harden hearts, as it were. Like, to, to speak the word and have it rejected. So you don't necessarily know what God's word is going to do, but it has power. It does exactly what he wanted it to. Now, Romans 1.16. If you're in Awanas, you know this one. Yeah. I think we said it, like, every day. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the gospel is a message. I'm not Ashamed of this message. For it is the power, the power, the ability, effective ability of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So when people, when the gospel comes in people's lives, like people you thought had no business turning and following Christ, turn and follow Christ. And you say, what? What just happened? The power of God just came to that person's life. It is effective. Now, there are only, in the history of humanity, 66 books that have snapped people's hearts and had them falling after Jesus Christ. We had them falling after God. It's these 66. You, like, I mean, there are good books written by good people, like godly people, good pastors, good books. And I mean, but a good book that gives me falling after Christ is the book that points me back to the Bible, helps me understand the Bible. It's the Bible that ultimately draws my hearts and my affections after Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, in verse 1 and 2, so Paul's talking to these Corinthians who, who they live in like, like New York City, like the city, the Big Apple, okay? And they've got all, like the best of the best, the best theater, you know, they got Broadway, we got Del Norte, Del Norte. <laughs> right? 
Yeah. They've got the big dock. We've got like downtown, like a dock that could be used but never is. Right? So it's kind of like they've got the best of the best of the best. And then this guy walks into town, Paul, gives them a message. A bunch of people get saved. But then they've got like the great orators, the great debaters, the great, like the great speakers and like the people who are shaking and moving and moving the culture. And there's, and, and it's like, yeah, it, I mean, it was exciting when you came, Paul, but, um, it's not, I mean, you're not that impressive. Paul says, yep, that's right. I'm not impressive. <laughs> that's the point. The point is, like these things that I'm speaking to you are spiritually discerned. And you need the Holy Spirit to help you understand and accept these things. So the reason why the Word of God has power is not just because God delivered it, but on the other side of it, the Holy Spirit's working in people's hearts to receive it. Okay. Which leads then to this last point, was accepted by the people of God. Was accepted by the people of God. So, John 10. We read this this morning. John 10. Ten twenty-five to 30. I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe them because you're not one of my sheep. So you don't accept these words because you do not belong to my flock. Um, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and not one will be snatched out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. My sheep hear my voice. And then Galatians, Galatians 4, 13 through 14. Paul, recounting the time that he went to Galatia, showed up. And he says, you know it's because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. In other words, I came to you, like, sick. And like, like, whatever. Like, maybe his eyes problem. People think he had eye problems. But for some reason, he came to them, like, sick, and he had to stop in Galatia. So you know it's because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Though my condition was a trial, you did not scorn me or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. Like, you receive me as a messenger of God. And then last week, BJ read from 1 Thessalonians 2.13, which says, to the Thessalonians, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, you heard it from us, you accepted it, not as the words of men, but what it really is, the words of God, which is at work in you believers. Okay, so... Do we, as a community, do we have every word that God has spoken to his people? No. Like, not by, John tells us at the end, of the, uh, the end of the Gospel of John, not by a long shot, right? He says, you know, if I were to write down everything Jesus said and did, you don't have enough books. Which, considering he's God, I think it's a true statement. But no. But what we do have what we do have as scripture is that which God has deemed necessary and sufficient for all people for all time. And it's preserved for us in scripture. This is the canon. 
So, was it accepted by the people of God? Like, there's only, we'll talk about this at great length, there's only one Bible. Like, there's only, now, have people at time to time had a hard time with a book? Yes. Okay. And they're kind of pop, you know, popular stories. Um, Martin Luther, the reformer, had a hard time with the book of James. Like, what's it doing in here? Like, get it out of here. Well, James' problem was that he just misunderstood what James was talking about. And he was kind of prone to extremes anyways. So he just went, they all like cut out my Bible sort of thing. But, but by and large, like one of the biggest offenses, and we'll, we'll see it more in the New Testament than the Old Testament, that the church accepted a bunch of books like, no, 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 we know this is the word of God. We know we received it from apostles. We know we did. And we're telling you, church over here, that we did. Okay? And people go, okay, got it. We're with you on this. Okay? And then oftentimes, like, once in a while, like, there would be books that are like, is this really from God? And, and the answer ended up being, like, other groups said, we received it. Here's how it came to us. Here's the, like, here's the, the background. Like, okay, we're good. Like, end of story. Right? So, yes, there are times that people reject the word of God. Yes, there's times that Christians have struggled with particular books. But by and large, like 99.9% of the church has accepted these as the books. I think there is... Um, uh, now, ah, this is good. Because now, so here are the criteria. This is what the church and the community of faith use to say, okay, book of, you know, revelation, not revelation. Okay, so now, who wrote Esther? Was it a prophet? Yeah, God. <laughs> yeah, but like, okay, who wrote Hebrews? Okay, yeah, uh-huh, right. So, you, okay, we got these criteria, but then like, we can't back them up. All right, so, not all of these questions can be answered by us in 21st century. Okay. We, ourselves, in some sense, cannot know, but we trust that there were those who believed it and accepted it as coming from God and who had better information than we did, and more at stake than we did. Americans, right? <laughs> Way more at stake. They're getting kicked out of their communities. They're probably getting killed. So they're, they're like, this it better be true. Okay. So there's a quote. I think you have it. Um, the substance of the matter. You see it? The substance of the matter is that writings with the force of canonical authority are based on eyewitness testimony of God's approval of the writer's of scripture by a sizable number in the community. So lots of people saw this go down, and a lot of people were convinced by it. This kind of testimony is open and sufficient. They saw, they heard. An awesome theophany, which is like, she kind of like, pillar of fire in the sky. Yeah, that's God, right? Um, they saw, no, and it's not just an individual, by the way, because I have this one lady is like, I saw the foot of God. You're like, what? And so I was sitting on the stage, and this foot came down right next to me, and it was, it was God. You're like, how do you know it's God? It's like, who else's foot would it be? Okay. Now, it's different if like 150 people came, we saw this foot, right? So it was like, it wasn't just one person's delusion. It was a whole community being able to look at this and say, yes, this really happened. Okay. So this kind of testimony is open sufficient. They saw, they heard. An awesome theophany, a manifestation of God's presence, permitted that no question be entertained that God had not spoken. Here is where the rationale for canonicity resides. And it will be shown 
But the Old Testament does not shift from this position. Canonicity is rooted in the measurable, visual, audible demonstration of God's approval upon an author of scripture to his contemporaries. His contemporaries. The people at the time who had more at stake than we did knew and were convinced. Okay. Um, one of the things we're going to do when we, is we're going to talk about like what were some of the challenged books of the Old Testament. Now, when we say challenged, what we're not saying is the, the initial acceptance. Almost all the challenges that we can consider came like later. There were some reasons for it. And then they get resolved. So when people accepted it, like it was clear to them that the scripture, it was clear, it was clear, it was clear. And then the head scratching came later. Okay. So now, um, a little bit on the close of the canon. So there's like the first books of the Old Testament, right? So we have it from what? Genesis 2 and the last book, Malachi, right? Okay. Yeah. So, um, so we, and then like stop. And then it's like nothing. So there was, the reason why we have like this Old Testament, New Testament, is that God was speaking at regular intervals to his people. A lot. Like prophets were among them, giving their word. And then all of a sudden, nothing. And it was disturbing. It was really disturbing to the Jews. Now, um, I have some quotes here um, speaking to this. So, um, so here are some texts from Jewish teachers in the intertestamental time. So between Malachi to John the Baptist. So these Jewish teachers during the time recognized that prophets had ceased. So God was speaking by prophets, no more prophets. So they say, no more revelation. So quote, until the coming of okay, Alexander the Great, who destroyed the Persian Empire. Remember that guy? Yeah. So the prophets prophesied through the Holy Spirit from then on. Okay, from then on, quote, incline thy ear and hear the words of the wise. In other words, yep, God spoke and now they don't. And now, we're to, what we're left with is we have this body of literature and we have teachers. So let them heed the word of the wise. Um, second century BC, which is when everything, the pro- prophetic activity, um, Second century, uh, oh yeah, I was explaining why, so never mind. So similarly, okay, quote, second temple lacked five things, which the first temple possessed. So remember, um, Solomon built great temple, Babylon's came and destroyed great temple, people came back from Persia and great, kind of, okay, big temple. And I'm saying, they lacked five things. Namely, the fire, the ark, the urim and thurim, the oil of anointing, and the Holy Spirit. Um, bummer. Yeah, the fire, you know, right, showing that God was there. The Urim theorem was a way that God kind of answered yes, no to them in cases. The anointing oil and the Holy Spirit. And so, no more prophetic teachings. Rabbi Abdmi of Hayaf says, since the day when the temple was destroyed, prophecy has been taken from the prophets and given to the wise. Prophecy has been taken from the prophets and given to the wise, which in other words, we're not receiving. So, I'm giving these quotes to say, like, during that time, they knew that something was up. They knew there was something different that was happening. First Maccabees, Simon, have you ever read the book of Maccabees? So cool. 
Simon Maccabees speaks of a great sorrow at the death of Judah and describes it as the greatest distress, worse since the time when the prophets ceased to appear among them. So, they knew it had happened. Okay. Now, dating of the Old Testament. Now, now I, the way I've explained it is like, you're an Israelite, and God gives new revelation, and that gets added. And another book is written, and it gets added to Scripture. So now, there's this whole conversation. Now, that's me, as a religious person who believes the Bible, saying that that's what happened. Now, to be fair, um, if secular scholars, people don't believe in the Bible as the God's spoken word, but as the re- religious text of a nation, um, they don't think that that's the way the Bible is formed. They think that the Bible was probably compiled, like, there were, like, stories and myths, and they were all kind of written into, like, this text in a very relative short period of time. Like, we're talking, like, scale of, like, one or two centuries, perhaps. Um, but not the many centuries that we're saying the Bible said it happened, okay? Um, there's two major reasons, and there's a third. I was walking here. I remember there was a third. I can't remember right now. What was a third? Okay, so... Um, First of all, the style of the writing differs wildly from what they would call contemporary texts. So what we're talking about here is that the Bible, and I'll bring in, not, not next time, the time after this, I'll bring in like equivalent texts that we have. Like, here's the Bible, here's Babylon. Here's the Bible, here's some other. And like, you see how the Bible looks, feels, sounds compared to other texts. And it's really different. Like, the Bible sounds, acts, feels really different in its writing style. In fact, it actually acts, feels like the way that story, like the way you talk about Abraham and he traveled from this place to that place and they had this conversation and it's like, oh, it's color and like plot and narrative and devices and like it's like a story unfolding. Like no one else is doing this. Until like Homer, the Homeric period. Um, and, then, and then maybe pushing up to Herodotus, it's like a couple centuries before Christ. Um, Herodotus, he'd tell these great stories of these narratives of Persian kings and how the Asiatic, like, things fell. And he'd tell these great stories, okay? And, and he would, like, compile all the stuff together. they say, you know, the Bible sounds more like these guys up in 2nd century B.C. than it really does, like, ancient times. So I think these books were written then. So in other words, they're saying, because these books sound like modern literature for that time, it must have been modern literature. And they're not giving the ability that they could have actually written this like this, right? the way they received it. Um, the second reason is, this one's great, information contained in the books could not have been known ahead of time. So in other words, for example, yeah, was like, no, yeah, yeah, that was the point, actually. Um, that was God's point. That he told you stuff ahead of time. But they're like, but that can't happen. So there's like a worldview saying like that this does not happen, so it had to have been written um, later. So, that, for example, uh, Isaiah says, Cyrus, my anointed. I'm sending, I'm sending this king, his name Cyrus. He's coming. And so, now, Isaiah prophesies it, and then later on, into Second Chronicles, Chronicles and Ezra, Cyrus shows up on the scene and like, delivers the people from captivity, sends them back home. And so, um, the Jewish community saw that and was like, oh my goodness. This dude, Cyrus, that God said was coming, just did it. This is really good news. So the Jewish community was really excited about this. Now, fast forward to 2000s AD, 
not so excited about it anymore, right? It's like, well, this was written after the fact. Okay. So, um, so I guess in that case, we got different interpretations. I, it's, it's not a fair fight in one sense, in terms of like, so I met, I had a lot of talks with this archaeologist who, so, he, he always get, he was a Christian, he was out there doing archaeology in Canaan, like the ancient land of Canaan, and the, people would always make fun of him that you have a Bible in one hand and a spade with the other, going, dig where? Right, okay. And he, but he said, like, like, time and time again, like, we're like, there's a city. It's called this. It should be around here. Like, the city does not exist. You're like, okay. It's like, your Bible is wrong. You're like, okay. And then later the city shows up, right? And you're like, like, so at some point he's like, you know, you could consider this a valid historical text, but they just will not give it valid historical texts. Um, there was, like, three years ago, Camelgate. Okay, there was this, the, all this writing all over the place. USA Today, New York Times. Camels found near the Dead Sea. Camels dating back to such and such a date. You know, they said Abraham uh, saw camels. Camels were not in his area at their time. Bible is wrong. I think there's an argument from silence. You have not uncovered a camel yet, so you're saying there is no camel, right? Camel bones. And then, like, good luck, like, how many camel bones made it, right? So almost all the time, like, a lot of, like, when you talk about the historical, like, validity of the Bible, like, the Bible has eyewitness testimony. It's straight up ignored because it's the Bible, because it's a religious text, they don't want to accept it. And most of the times, everything that's put, posited as like reasons why you should not believe the Bible is simply arguments from silence. For example, there's Solomon, right? Big king, they don't have anything that has any Solomon's mark on it. So they said, king didn't exist. They think they found some stables. They're working on it. Okay? And so it's like, well, if he's such a great king, why don't we have any of his artifacts? Like, dude, his kingdom was destroyed. <laughs> like, like, halved by Judah and Israel destroyed. And then, like, Assyria came, and then Babylon came. I mean, they just... Ruined it. And so um, one day, I don't doubt, they're going to find something from... They said the same thing about David. They found David's seal. So things are looking good. So it's usually a lack of it. But the Old Testament is very specific and consistent. There are detailed histories from Genesis to Nehemiah. These histories, they're not closed... Like, it's not like they're making up their own little like past. They're talking about this Egyptian king... This Assyrian king, this happened, that happened during that time. Remember that big earthquake? Yeah, that happened. Okay, and so they're, and they're locked in with like modern, in their case, modern history. They're they're giving us details about kings and geopolitical events. Okay, and and they do it the whole way through. I mean, we got it from like Genesis up through Chronicles. Like you may think those genealogies are boring, but you better be glad they're there, right? Because God is keeping track. There's like no gaps. Like, God was taking care of it, like, keeping this narrative going with, like, historical valid, like, valid proof that the people at that time could look at. People at that time could look at it and say, yep, this is exactly what happened. Okay, it's just us who has the issue with accepting that. Okay, and then, by the way, so, speaking of, like, the prophets who were, like, obviously prophesying 100 years after the event. Okay, so, the histories lock you in. Like, you can know where the prophets were. So, because, like, in Corinthians, or, I keep saying this, Chronicles, like, oh, yeah, and then Isaiah said this, at this time. So you go to Isaiah, it's like, oh, it's happening during this time. And then, not all the prophetic books that we have, like, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, like, they're not all necessarily stay those 
in the history is like, oh yeah, remember when Hosea was doing this? Actually, I think Hosea was stated. But you can track backwards and say, okay, this prophet was speaking about this event at this time. For example, Amos. Amos is talking about the fall of Samaria. Okay, that dates them. So even though Amos is not stated in the histories, we know at what time and like the events, and it sounds very much exactly what was happening during that time. They had these cows that they were bowing down to. There was two of them, one in the north, one in the south. So you can say, okay, Amos fits in right here. And the only, okay, but to be fair, the only prophet we don't actually know exactly where they played is Obadiah. He's prophesying against Edom, and Edom had a, got kicked around a lot. So it's kind of know which kicked around you're talking about. So people have theories, but no, there's not, that's the only one that we actually can't say uh, which one's which. Which, I mean, we're like 9 for 10. And, and it's not that we're saying that Edom didn't get kicked around. We just don't know which time Obadiah was speaking to. Okay, so actually, so, pause for a minute, stretch. Questions? Yeah. I'll talk about it. It's coming. Yeah. And in terms of how many were found, we'll talk about manuscripts, like how old, like, like found out of the ground, like scripture. Yeah. Oh, we'll talk about that too, but that's in a couple weeks. Yeah. Stretch good? Okay. Yeah, oh, let's make it a stretch break. Like stand up, get some like fresh air, get some water, drink or something you need. Let's not make that. Yeah, we've got 50 minutes left, so. Oh. I'm drinking it. I can do this. By skipping. Not by talking faster. I want to see that. By skipping. <laughs> okay. Alright, so... Okay, so we're at the part that says challenged books. Okay, this is the part where I'll just kind of give a small song and dance about it and then kind of leave it alone. We'll actually deal with this in greater depth for New Testament books because, honestly, the, the Old Testament doesn't have a lot of challenges going against it that we think are... It's either you reject the whole thing or you accept the whole thing, and there's not a whole lot. But there were moments in church history, um, a lot of these challenges came... Right around the time the church and the Jews realizing that they're not going to be getting along very well, and they start splitting off. And there's like these questions about, okay, wait, so like you say this is what, and is this the what? Okay, so like are these books? And so like the big ones worth mentioning would be um, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Um, I think for the the church, one of the biggest things about the Song of Solomon. Um, there, there's only two books not explicitly referenced in the New Testament, which is the Song of Solomon and Esther. Um, but for like reasons I'll say at the end, they, there's a better like even though it's not cited, doesn't mean that they didn't think of scripture. That again is an argument for silence. Although I think it's also encouraging that like all the other books were referenced at 
length. Every other referenced or we all say alluded to, like some imagery was drawn out of the book and used. So, so Song of Solomon um, had a hard time because what do you do with it? Like, what do you do with the Song of Solomon? Okay, yes, right. They would actually not let prepubescent boys read the book. <laughs> at, at some point, and like, yeah, because um, they didn't want them to misunderstand. <laughs> um, so, so I think that was the, the main challenge of Song of Solomon. So, so people have had a hard time with that. What do you do with it? That's kind of the bigger issue. Esther had a problem, and I say, see Appendix A, and I didn't give you Appendix A. I'll email Appendix A. It's a paper, small paper, but um, I have like someone arguing for the candidacy of Esther using the like the criterion that I outlined and kind of going through it systematically. I think it's helpful. Um, the issue with Esther was that God's name is never brought up, which is not the biggest issue for a lot the people who had an issue with it. The biggest issue is that they had this uh, new festival, Purim, that was introduced at the end of it, and people said, you're adding to scripture. You're adding to the law. Um, so they had a hard time with it. But at the same time, like, it was clear to the people of God that God, it's clear to the Jews that God had delivered them through his sovereign hand, and it was perfectly appropriate. So it ended up not being a huge issue. Ecclesiastes. The reason why Ecclesiastes had some uh, head-scratching going on is because, okay, so we don't really get this very well in our English Old Testaments, but there, there are um, many name, like, titles used of God. The main two is Elohim and Yahweh. The covenant name of God, the name that God used to his people was Yahweh, which means I am who I am. Like, it's basically, like, the verb, you know, to be verbs in English, like, is, was. Like, it's basically a to-be verb. That's what God used. So I am a to-be verb. <laughs> Grammar name. That's crazy. It's deep. So in Ecclesiastes, it never speaks to God as Yahweh. Always it's Elohim, 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 which is his, like, kind of, kind of um, like, I am God to the nations type God. And, and so some people had problems with that. Like, this is not written to his people. Not to mention the cynicism, kind of, in Ecclesiastes, although it's good good, deep. I think one of the best explanations of Ecclesiastes I've heard is, in some ways, Solomon was an apologist to the nations. Like, he was telling, like, people would come to him, right, to hear wisdom. And so, like, some people argue that Ecclesiastes is, like, his, like, basically one of his discourses, where he, like, basically argues from, like, um, (laughs) kind of from a point that they all agree with him. Like, life's rough! Yeah. Okay. All these bad things happen. Yeah. You need to know God. Oh. Right. So. So. And so, since it was kind of ri- perhaps written to like that audience, it would have been appropriate to use Elohim the whole time. Could be. All right. So. Yes. Yes. Song of Solomon. Song of Songs. Yeah, it's like the, if I recall correctly, I looked at this, in Hebrew, it's like, this, it's, it's kind of like, um, in Hebrew, if you want to say something's great, like, if you want to talk about a deep pit, you call it, you say it's a pit pit. It's like a pit pit, right? So, um, in the Song of Solomon, when it's like, they refer to it as like a song song. 
And so Song of Songs, or and then we also identify it as being written by Solomon, so Song of Solomon. Yeah, that's where Song of Songs came from. Oh, by the way, so Pit Pit, Song of Songs, Holy, Holy, Holy. Get a third one in there. It's like, not just Holy, Holy, Holy. Like, throw one more on there, just to make sure you understand, like, how holy he is. That's not, so it kind of builds on that. Do you have, I'm supposed to repeat the question. That was why Song of Songs versus Song of Solomon, for the record. Okay. Do you have another question? Okay. Okay, so Old Testament arrangements. This is great. So this will get to the, uh, what you're asking about the Septuagint. Okay, so the Masoretic uh, texts, or the, I'm calling it canon just for the name, Masoretic or Jewish canon. So this arrangement was what was used by the Jewish community during the ministry of Christ. So when Christ would open the Bible, here's, what he, like, here's the arrangement he would see. Okay, so you had... The first, like the Torah, right? The five, the five books, which I told you is basically it's one book, but they had to break it into three, five pieces. So the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay. Then they had the prophets. Now, the, they, they break it into the former prophets and the latter prophets. And so, so they actually grouped Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as prophetic literature. Interesting? Yeah, because it was prophet, because the authorship was prophets. The authors of these were, like Samuel, they're pretty sure was written by Samuel, right? He has inside information that only Samuel would know. So Samuel is the writer of it. And so, th- so they believe that, that the former prophets, Joshua Judges, Samuel and Kings were written by prophets. So, so take that in a little bit. So when you're reading Kings, when you're reading Judges, like those kind of hard to read books, like, it's the prophets reminding them the way things were. You have to know this. Like, God set up his standard, and here's how you broke it, and that's why judgment came. It's kind of one of the arcs inside the Old Testament. So the former prophets, and there's the latter prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then they call them the Twelve. Okay, so, um, so the, the minor prophets, the small books, they just called them the Twelve. Now, um, sometimes when like a writer's going in the New Testament and they like a shorthand, so sometimes they say the prophets. Sometimes they'll actually say, you know, so said, you know, as they say in Isaiah, and they quote Jeremiah. You're like, what? Okay, it's because Isaiah started off the prophets, and it's kind of their way of like, oh, Isaiah. So if you read the Bible, like, oh yeah, and Isaiah, just keep flipping a couple pages, Jeremiah. Okay, then so sometimes Isaiah is used by to mean that. I think there's only one or two times it happens. Um, and then there's the writings. So they, so they broke their Bible into three pieces. The law, the prophets, the writings. So the major divisions. So um, the writings would be Psalms, Proverbs, Job, the five scrolls. We'll talk a little more about that in a second. So small books, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. The five scrolls. And then the histories. Daniel. Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, they didn't break up Ezra and Nehemiah into two books the way we do. Um, it's like one book. So the Ezra slash Nehemiah book and Chronicles. And similarly, we have First and Second Kings. They just had Kings. First and Second Chronicles. They just had Chronicles. Um, now, this one always got me. Daniel's history. I always would have thought that Daniel would be prophetic. But, I mean, it's like 50-50, right? It's got history. It's got prophecy in it. They... One of the things about it, uh, okay, so yeah, 
I won't say that. I was, I was going to shoot off the cuff. I don't think it's true. I should validate it before I say it. Okay. So Dan will be part of the histories. Okay, now this is fun. This, okay, this one's just kind of a side note. So the five scrolls, do you see this under, it's in italics? The five scrolls were read liturgically at corresponding festivals. So the, like, the Jews knew how to party. I mean, God set it up for them. Like, they had a party going on every year. Like, we, we cluster our parties at the end of the year. You got Thanksgiving, and then you got Christmas, and my birthday. Like, so it was all clustered at the end, right? So, but they would have, like, kind of throughout the year, kind of corresponding to different, like, parts of, like, you know, before the harvest came, and after the harvest came in, and, like, before winter, and stuff like that. Okay, and so they have these festivals, and so Song of Solomon was read traditionally at the Passover. So God, so, and that's really connected to God's love for his people. I mean, marriage ultimately represents that. So it was read at Passover. This one's, Ruth was read at Pentecost. Okay. Um, it, the events of Ruth happened at Pentecost. So that's part of it. Um, but maybe if you want to like draw like someone else, like Ruth, Gentile, Pentecost is when the Gentiles come in. Maybe. It's kind of interesting. Lamentations was read at the memorial of the fall of Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes, the Feast of Booze. Now that's the one I want to imitate. Feast of Booze, you go out camping. Yeah. Okay. And then they read scripture. It's great. So Ecclesiastes would be read at the Feast of Booze. And Esther, of course, Purim, because that's why Purim was started. It's interesting. Okay. Now the Septuagint. So here's, here's like the big one. Okay. So now... The Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? Now, if you're reading stuff, the Septuagint is abbreviated LXX, which is the Roman numerals for 70. The reason why 70 is because there are 72 translators that worked on it for um, King Ptolemy II. So this is the Septuagint. So what happens? So after Malachi. Okay, so people, like when we leave the Old Testament, people are in Jerusalem, like not doing great kind of doing okay, not like a superpower by any stretch of the words. They're kind of a little fiefdom of a bigger nation. Okay. Then Alexander the Great comes in and completely, well, I'm going to say completely destabilizes the region. Well, he comes in and conquers, right? And he makes Greek like the common trade language. Like everybody can talk to each other now because you can speak Greek. So it's um, Koine Greek is what they call it. And then he dies. And then there's like this massive battle. So, so, Alexander dies young, and he's got these two generals who just start duking it out. So the Seleucids up in the north, and the Ptolemies down in the bottom. And so, and what's really a bummer is like smack dab on the borderline, the, the skirmish line, is Israel. <laughs> one king takes over, okay, Israel conquered. The other one takes some land back, Israel's conquered again. And then conquered again, and conquered again. And so like, Israel's like in this back and forth moment, okay. Um, but one of the times when they were under the control of the Ptolemies down the south. Um, King Ptolemy is the one that made the great Alexandrian library. He was all about collecting texts together, so he commissioned 70 people to translate the Jewish texts into Greek so that they would have a copy of it. And then conveniently, it's kind of something that you could spread around. Now, there were Jews in Israel, but there's also what they call the dysphoria, those who lived abroad, who never came back home. And so um, they would not have kept up on the Hebrew or they're Aramaic, depending on what dialect they're at at this point, um, they would know Greek. So it was really convenient, because then they could say, oh, and now we have a Greek translation that is um, yours. Now, 
the point here is that when they wrote, when, when he commissioned this, he said, I want Jewish literature. He didn't say, I want your Bible. I want your literature. Okay, so they didn't just translate the Bible. They translated the Bible and other important writings to the Jews. And so now look at this. They broke it up in these charts. The Pentateuch for the first five were good. History, poetry, and prophecy. Now, I've given them like one star, double star. One star just means it's apocryphal. Double star means it's apocryphal and the Roman Catholic Church accepts it as canonical. Okay. So now, so anything with a star right now. These were other books. Judith, Tobit, 1st Maccabees, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees. These were histories written during the intertestamental period. But do note, remember... The Jewish community did not think they had prophets at this time. They're not expecting prophetic revelation. They did not consider the Maccabees on par with Scripture. They didn't have prophetic authorship. Uh, similarly, Ode of Solomon, Wisdom of Solomon, the Sirach, and the Psalms of Solomon were like other collected writings from Solomon, but the people never considered these necessarily to be Scripture. They just like, we have these collections. Um, and in the prophecy, there's Baruch, which is Jeremiah's scribe, if you remember from Jeremiah. Below Jeremiah, Susanna, Daniel, Bell and the Dragon. So there are these other books. So, we should say there's other writings going on, the way that we have other writings going on, um, different styles and genres. They were not considered to be the Bible. The reason we know that is because, back up, remember the Masoretic text that I just told you about? That was what would be in the synagogues. When they would go around, they had the synagogues. They had the Bible. The syna- like, that would be it. And so, these right here, none of those books were in the uh, Masoretic texts. And in fact, in a lot of cases, in a lot of other translations, it's not... So when, it's like, when the Bible is translated into Syriac, we don't find them in the Syriac translations. It's just this Greek version that we saw a lot of these books. Now, the reason why... So now, this is the bummer. Like... And like, like sometimes an editor sees a book, like, in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done that. Okay. So in hindsight, I think they regretted the choice. So I was just like, here are the histories written by the Jews. So you have the Bible, and then append to it other histories written by the Jews. And so now when you disperse it, it, so like, people are like, oh, so I guess this is part of our history too. So somehow, like, this didn't happen in a lot of places, but in a few places, they're like, oh, these are all of our histories. This is our whole Sec, um, religious texts. There was maybe some confusion, maybe like that's overplayed a little bit. I have no clue. Yeah, you got me on that one. Um, okay, actually, I could probably do this. Apo means after, so after something. <laughs> right. Yes. 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 Okay, so I'm glad you clarified. So it would be like here's a collection of Jewish writings and they hand it there. There has been evidence like maybe like some like groups like in like off in the desert somewhere over here, especially closer to Egypt where Alexander was, started to kind of seem like they're treating it as equal to scripture. By far in the way, the rest of the Jewish community did not. They knew the difference. Okay, but 
you could understand how there starts to be a little bit of a confusion of like, okay, where was the line drawn? Okay, that's where the Masoretic text is really helpful because if you're trained to study scripture, the Masoretic text, the big scroll that would be in the synagogue, the one above, the, the first one, that had the Bible, that's the one you'd be trained with if you're trained with scripture. So I think in the com- minds of the community, like, you would know the difference if you had a synagogue around because they would keep the Bible. And so like, oh wait, so these Greek, um, these Greek ones are the Bible, and these Greek ones were not in the Bible, so they're not the Bible. Yes. Yes. I'm going to answer that. Yeah, yeah, it gets interesting. Okay, so, now, in the New Testament, when the New Testament quotes, okay, Oftentimes, not all the time, oftentimes when the New Testament writers quote the Bible, they're quoting Septuagint because they're talking most of the time to Greek people. So they're using the Greek Bible that they had on hand. Okay. Sometimes it's kind of interesting, like Paul, they're pretty sure he's translating himself. Like he had a Bible, he had a Hebrew Bible himself and he would translate out of it. Okay. All... The thing that's really helpful for me with the Apocrypha, so in the mind, the Jewish people did not consider the Apocrypha to be scripture. They thought, you know, the Masoretic text version. We'll call it MTV. <laughs> no! <laughs> Bad call. Okay. The Masoretic text was like, that's like that's their <laughs> authoritative Bible. Um, <laughs> I totally lost my train of thought. What was it saying? <laughs> um, oh, and so like, so like, the, so the authors are using the Septuagint all the time. And they never, never, never quote the Apocryphas. They never did. Okay, now I'll grant it, they didn't quote Solomon or Esther. So that would be like kind of the you know, 50-50, where is it going? But it was in the Masoretic text, so they accepted it. So, I, so the only exception being potentially Jude, who refers to Enoch and uh, one other one, uh, the Assumption of Moses, which Assumption of Moses wasn't even one of them. So this is like other, like he was, it's a question of like, was he using, did he necessarily view them, just because he used them doesn't mean he necessarily used them as scripture. He's like, you know, historical reference, right? So, like, just referring to something they would know about. Paul does it, like, as one of your poets have said. You know, he uses that. So, but he, like, there's no indication that the, I mean, no indication that the New Testament authors treated these as scripture. They didn't use them. And, and then when Jesus talks about scripture, he's talking about, and I'll, I'll show you reasons why we pretty sure this is true. He's talking about the Masoretic text when he refers to scripture. Okay, now the Roman Catholics. So then why did, okay, the Roman Catholics accept some of the Apocrypha as scripture? Ha, ha. Interesting question. Glad you asked. Because there was this thing called the Reformation. (laughs) And things got really testy. Because, um, first of all, okay, (laughs) to add to the confusion, so, the Apocrypha was translated over into Greek. Later on, when the Romans all took over, the language was Latin. So then they translated it into Latin, and that's called the Vulgate. Have you heard of that? Okay, Jerome. So around 300 AD, uh, one of the most authoritative figures in the church right now is St. Augustine. And he commissions a guy named Jerome to translate things into Latin. And then, so he says, so he's says, oh, and by the way, can you also translate over some of these books from the Septuagint? 
Okay, Jerome threw a fit. He's like, no, <laughs> like I don't want that confusion of like whether or not these are scripture. But this is where I think as Protestants we might overreact a, overreact a little bit. So Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, they all knew what was in the Apocrypha. They read the Apocrypha. They didn't treat it as scripture, but they referred to them as very helpful books. Because what was going on between Old Testament and New Testament? Answer, read the Maccabees. Kind of vicious. Okay? So there's like this history. So they, they say it's helpful. So Augustine's like, no, no, Jerome, it's helpful. Jerome's like, you don't really want to do this. But Jerome does it because Augustine's the, the boss. So he does it with great duress. Okay. So now fast forward a couple hundred years. Guess what? <laughs> Some Catholic doctrines are being derived solely out of the Apocrypha. Some of the ideas of purgatory, some of the ideas of um, you being able to burn off, uh, to work through people's sin, like with a penance, with money, came out of the Apocrypha, not anywhere else in the New Testament. So, so then the reformers like, cut it out. Like if you're, you got these whole doctrines that are like ruining the churches and your only supporting text comes from these books, get it out. Now, the Council of Trent around the 1500s was like a reaction against the Protestant Reformation. And surprise, surprise, they say, oh, and by the way, we declare this to be scripture. Like, after the fact. After the fight has already been fought, they're like, oh, and we're going to refer to these now as scripture. Particularly the ones that defended these doctrines of which they're fighting over, right? They want, well, I should be kinder. They wanted the money, right? They're building huge cathedrals. They want the money. So, um, so in the council, the first council of Trent, they ratified it as scripture. Now, the difference, and this is what's important, the Roman Catholic position about what's authoritative is different than like the rest of the church in this matter. I say God gives his word. He confirms his word. The people accept his word. God determines what is his word. The Roman Catholic Church says, what we do, God does. So whatever we say is scripture is scripture. And so that, that's like the Pope, right? The Pope is God's representative on earth. So, so the Catholic Church's position actually on canon is anything we say is canon is canon. And so these are now canon. <laughs> so, okay. It was a bad time to be Catholic. So, yeah. Jewish scholars, yeah. So Jewish scholars who knew, right? They could Hebrew. They could take the Hebrew text, translate them into Greek. Yeah. Yeah. Other yeah. Other questions is great. Time to ask questions. Yes. If there's a pagan influence, it's that the king's paying them to do it, and they're just going to do what the king asks them to do. Yeah. I like. There's no indication of these men themselves were intending to corrupt the Bible. That was not their intention. Right. It's good, kind of good intentions possibly gone bad. Yeah. Other questions you had or comments? Gladly. Yeah, that's just the way, yeah. Right, they, right, and so, and they also refer to like, they, they take this text, 
So I, should, I guess from their explanation, my understanding of their explanation is that um, Paul refers to his writings and other things I've told you. Like the other things I've told you, it's kind of like a lot of the other stuff that's come out of the Catholic Church. Like, oh, well, this would have been... And they also feel like God's at their back on this. Like any decision they make, God's making this decision in and through them, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, is that a leading question? That's a leading. Okay. Um, so, yeah, some of the problem with the Apocrypha, so people have noted, so some of those, like, criteria for, like, here's the reasons we accept Scripture, like, they kind of fail not just at the wasn't written by a prophet point. Some of it was, like, embellished history. Um, some of it was, like, there's just stuff that's clearly not, like, this probably wouldn't jive as good theology. And so, like, you can point at, like, especially in some of these, like, Bell the Dragon stuff, and, like, they have some, like, things like, oh, no. Kind of for the same reason, we're going to talk to other Gospels out there, um, like the Gospel of Thomas, who thinks that women are evil. Okay, that's a good reason not to accept the Gospel of Thomas, right? Because the, the Bible has no indication. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, like, I mean, to be fair, if I was a secular listening to the conversation, it's like, well, both sides have this problem, right? And you're just choosing to pick on the Apocrypha because it's not in your religious text. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's, so yeah, so Bell and the Dragon, oh yeah, so there's like, we'll talk about this in four classes from now. So there's like genres, like, okay, so we have like, you know, movie genres, right? Action, adventure, romance, and all this. Okay, and they had like, and so, and they had certain functions. Similarly, the, um, there are genres in the Old Testament and New Testament where, like, like they're vehicles for um, delivering content in a certain way. So there's poetry, and then, like, there's this one called apocryphal. And, like, we ourselves don't have apocryphal literature as a culture, so I think it's kind of lost on us sometimes. We use these epic scenes of these dragons coming and slaying. Like, these mean something. The people are reading this going, like, oh, yeah, horns, power, bold, uh, spirit. You know, they, and there's all this imagery they, they understand. Yeah. So, like, so people are writing, like, in this style to communicate ideas. Yeah. And then you were saying that, that pre-Reformation, the Apocrypha was not included as Scripture. It was not included as Scripture in the same way that in Septuagint, like, it was in the Septuagint, but not accepted as Scripture. So, because the Latin Vulgate, like, copied over some of them so people could have access to them, but rather than publishing them as a separate book, they published it kind of all together. So, and, and so the reaction so the reaction was to make it very clear. Um, but then the, the reformers still found it was helpful when they were trying to themselves. Yes. Yeah, because like the, in the 380s, they were saying this could potentially be a problem. Yeah. And August, August says, I think the value is there. We should keep them there. So they do it. By 1580, like 1500s, yep, it's been a problem. As an overreaction? Yeah. Possibly. So remember, the reformers were okay reading them. They just didn't want you driving any theology out of them. Yeah. That's when they, that's when they were like, eh. Which, and then, which is why the Roman Catholic said, uh, no, they're not scripture. So now you have to drive 
Now it's perfectly legitimate for us to derive theology out of them. Yeah. You should you should read them. Honestly. Especially the Maccabees. So helpful. For like what was going on? Online. Yeah, you can go online, just Maccabees. <laughs> yeah. Who Yeah. Like, I find it helpful when I read, like, stuff, like, histories, archaeology, saying, oh, this was happening in Persia, this was happening in Meta, like, with the Medes. And that's helpful because it's kind of like, oh, I see what's going on around right here. Like, that's kind of the way I treat the Maccabees. Like, oh, that was what's going on. It's really helpful. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah. And like some of the, like, we got nine minutes, so I, we have to finish this up. But um, some of the setups that, what I think is really interesting is because some of the setups going on with Jesus is like, one of the things that Maccabee spells out is like all the zealots, the zealot movement. And like, and some of the, like, some of the things they expected the Messiah to be and do. And the way they try to, push Jesus in these corners to set him up to look like a zealot to the Romans who are immediately going to like crash down and say, no, we know what you're trying to do here. So, yeah, and so a lot of the imagery is in they, they're getting from their own history in Maccabees. Okay. Okay, so 10 minutes or so, we'll get through this, no problem. All right, so Christ in the Old Testament canon. Okay, so um, one of my favorite current pastors, uh, writers right now is Timothy Keller on Twitter. He said one day, people said, um, why do you believe that the Old Testament is the Bible? And it's Twitter, so you only have 144 characters, so he just fires back because Jesus said so. (laughs) Jesus said that this was scripture. So one of the most compelling reasons to accept the Old Testament canon as scripture is that Jesus did. Here's some examples. So we know one. We just studied it. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, so when he says scripture, he's referring to not the Septuagint with the prophets. He's talking about the Masoretic text. And, and by the way, we say dot, well, we say iota and dot. It's like an idiom, but like if you look, look really, really close. Squint at your paper. Someone did this once. Okay, do you see like on the M, on one of the most compelling, the M has like a little serif, they call them, like a little turn at the top. Like he's referring to those. So in Hebrew, there's um, like some letters are only distinguished by a little turn of the pen, like that. It says like even those will get accounted for. So he had a very high view of scripture. Now here's the fun one. Luke 11.51. Turn there. This is great. This goes down as like one of my also like super favorite scriptures right now. 
It's Luke 11, 51. Okay, so right now Jesus is kind of laying into the Pharisees, rightfully so. Okay, and um, and so he's, oh man, this is so interesting. Okay, so in 51 he says, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perish between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Okay, so a little bit of context. So, Jesus is basically saying, like, he's, he's prophesying that I'm going to send prophets and apostles, and you're going to kill them. And, and you're going to have the blood of pretty much, like, the all, like, because what these people are declaring to you is the fulfillment of all the prophetic message. So if you're ignoring these people, if you're ignoring me, you're basically guilty of the whole, like, every prophet who was killed because they spoke the word of the Lord, you're doing it to the nth degree. So it's like that Sodom and Gomorrah thing today, like, it's worse for you. You have the whole system on your shoulders at this point. Now, from the blood of Abel to Zechariah. Okay, so Abel, when was he killed? Genesis. Okay. Zechariah, when was he killed? Second uh, Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Okay. Where is Second Chronicles located in the English Bible? Smack dab in the middle? Okay. Where is Second Chronicles in the Masoretic text? It's the last book. It's like he's literally doing it A to Z. From Abel to Zechariah. Okay. So in other words, so what Bible is Jesus looking at? And we don't have to look necessarily at like um, just saying, like, well, because the Jews used this during that time, Jesus used it. Like, here it is. Like, he's just using A to Z from Abel to Zechariah from Genesis to Chronicles. He's looking at the Masoretic text. Or is I should say absolutely. It's like, I'm like 99.999% sure he's looking at the Masoretic text when he says that. Okay. So, yeah. So it's the last book. All right. So... That, and so that's kind of adding to like the argument why I don't think the Septuagint was was there. Okay, now facts that Jesus assumed to be true from Scripture. Okay, so like okay, today obviously people have a problem with the Bible. You see that? You feel that? Totally. Okay, and so like one ways that like churches have been trying to do. Hello. Okay, one way churches have been trying to deal with that is just distance themselves from things in the Old Testament. Say, yeah, but that's like mythology, or that's legend. Okay, so here are things that Jesus assumes to be true from the Old Testament. Adam and Eve were the first married couple that happened in the, in the beginning. Some people don't believe there's a historical Adam. Or, like, Adam wasn't married for another day. Okay, Noah and the flood. There was a flood, big flood. Jesus believed it. Lot and his wife, remember she turns into salt? He believed it. Sodom and Gomorrah. He believed it. Moses the serpent in the wilderness. He believed it. Manna from heaven. He believed it. The miracles of Elijah. He believed it. Jonah. Jonah. That big fish that doesn't happen. Jesus believed it. Okay. So, so things he's just like, he just doesn't have any problems with these things. And then additionally, Jesus never once challenged the veracity of scripture. 
He never said, when he does like, you've heard it said, but I say to you, oftentimes he's challenging modern interpretation of something. He's never saying, yeah, about that part of scripture. That was wrong. No. Jesus never once challenges the veracity of scripture. He never said something to like, oh, and by the way, this book wasn't from God. Instead, Jesus considered scripture in like every interaction. Like you cut Jesus, he bleeds scripture. Like you're tempting Jesus in the wilderness, Satan, and he's quoting Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, right? <laughs> like if you had like if like us getting through a temptation was you knowing a scripture in Deuteronomy, how are you gonna do? Praise God there's a Messiah who saves us, okay? <laughs> right. So he like he studies the word. He knows the word inside and out. And so, like, and he makes arguments. I love this. They're, they're arguing, like, so the Sadducees don't believe that people, will, that there's a resurrection from the dead. And Jesus goes in there and says, oh, what does it say? Oh, yeah, and you are gods, plural. He's not, like, saying you are um, deities. There's, there's another context for gods, like, you're just, like, powerful rulers or something like that. And he's, like, getting them. He's arguing with them based on a letter. On a word. A letter. Jesus arguing over a letter. Okay? How much do you think Jesus... Like, first of all, he knows it, and he trusts it. Inherently. So I argue, so should we. Oh, by the way, the apostles who write scripture, like the New Testament, quote scripture again and again and again and again. They never assume that the Old Testament was false. They relied on it completely. They never questioned it. This is my, like, probably my favorite commentary. Commentary of the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. Okay, so, like, the, so the New Testament used the Old Testament. How much? A lot. Like, I can barely, like, flip a page and get through it. Like, it's just everywhere. Quoting, 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 alluding to, alluding to, alluding to to over and over again, the New Testament just uses it a lot. They treated it as Scripture. And in fact, every time the New Testament says, and Scripture says, and Scripture says, and Scripture says, okay, we'll talk about the New Testament next time, so we'll be good. They mean, oh, <laughs> the Old Testament, right? The Masoretic Testament. That's what they mean when they do that. They refer to like the writings, they refer to as the Old Testament. And, get this, they still say, they believed that God still actively spoke. He didn't past tense spoke. He actively present tense speaks. So, to close that off, let me point you back to Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 7. 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit... Not said? Yes. Says. Mine says says. Guess what the Greek says? Says. <laughs> You're reading the right Bible. Yes, it is a present tense verb intentionally. I don't think it's any mistake that he said the Holy Spirit says and then quotes the Old Testament. In other words... God is speaking to you right now.
from the Old Testament. You need to listen and obey. All right. Um, I so some yeah. So if you are interested in pursuing some of this in depth, so this is simply a summary. So there are two books that I would highly commend to you, and they're here. So um, some of these resources I have, so like Church History Syllabus Notes, New Testament Induction Syllabus Notes, those are things I got at seminary. I still have them if you want them. Um, they're very helpful. But the two I really want to draw your attention to is um, the one by Merrill, Eugene Merrill, The World and the Word, an introduction to Old Testament. So, so what's going on in the Old Testament as the Bible is being delivered? And so like pretty much a lot of this conversation gets addressed in depth in the Word and the World. And you can get it in Kindle. It's pretty good. Um, they go more into like, like the question about canons and stuff like that. Um, there's, there's probably a little bit more that could be said, but like just time. Um, the other one, and this is one, is, is doubly good for you. Geisler and Nick's A General Introduction to the Bible. Um, I mean, the people I'm referring to here in academic standards, these are not uh, like some weird, like some like kook guy down in Texas. These are like respected, even, even if disagreed with by secular scholars, at least respected to some degree for the quality of their work. So Geisler and Nix, they have what's called a general introduction to the Bible, which this is helpful for both the Old and New Testament, um, talking, like, talking about this conversation about what's canon, what did they say, what were some quotes. So very helpful. All right, so I think it's a point where I say, ah, go get your kids. But if you have any questions, I would be glad to talk. So you're welcome. Yeah. I have found this to be helpful for myself. So it's like me just passing on what I find helpful. So recording ends now.